Hey there, this is Brian. I'm the host of the Engaging Missions show. If you've found this show for the first time, I did want to take a second to let you know that this show is not currently in production. You're certainly welcome to check out all of the archives, but we don't have new episodes coming out at the moment. However, I did want to take a second to highlight one of the sponsors that sponsored the show a while ago. They're not currently sponsoring the show, but if you're looking for a place to invest in the kingdom, I'd recommend checking out Mega Voice Audio Bibles. You can find them at megavoice.com, or you'll find a link in the show notes, and I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. Hi, everyone. This is Steve Addison, author of Pioneering Movements, and you're listening to The Engaging Missions Show. Welcome to the Engaging Mission Show with Brian Ensminger. We are bringing missions home. Each week, we hear from missionaries, ministry leaders, disciple makers, and church planters as they share about God's work in their lives and ministries. Like us, they are ordinary people who serve an extraordinary God. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Brian Ensminger. Hi, and welcome, World Changers. I'm your host, Brian Ensminger, and this is the Engaging Missions Show. Our guest this week spent about 12 years as a missionary in Borneo. He's been a lecturer at a graduate school and the regional director and a strategy coordinator. Now he's a discipleship trainer in Asia. In fact, one of the people that connected with him actually shared with me that he's the real Indiana Jones when it comes to missions in India, <laughs> Nepal, and the greater Southeast Asia. I do want to mention that we're going to use a pen name for security reasons. We, we don't want to do anything to inhibit his ability to travel, and we don't want to compromise the safety of anybody who's involved with. So today our guest is going by Bill. So Bill, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. So I understand from some of the, the information that people put in that you are a proud grandfather. Would you mind sharing with us just a little bit about your family? Well, I have one wife and five grandkids. And uh, I have two sons. One is a Marine and one is a civil engineer. My daughter uh, died after giving birth to her third child. And uh, that was about five years ago now. But she's in the presence of our Lord. Wow. Uh, and one of the people also was interested in hearing a little bit about how your wife is involved in your ministry. At the present time, her primary role is to coordinate the family, keep me um, keep things running here in the States while I'm overseas. When we were in Borneo, of course, she had a very aggressive work among the ladies, uh, doing women's teaching, uh, health care, because she's a nurse, and was more directly involved at that time. But with these later assignments, it's been mostly prayer and support. Well, that's great. As we as we get into this and get to know you a little bit, I, I'm interested in hearing a little bit about um, a, maybe a meaningful quote or a scripture that's been really meaningful to you as you think about your life in ministry. The key verse for me has been Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. The day after my conversion, having been raised Christian, I knew Christians need to be in the, the Scriptures. So I decided that next morning, I'm going to read a part of the Bible I've never read. And I went to Jeremiah, and I came to chapter 1, verse 5, and it was like God just pressed that on my heart and said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And that's been the effort that I've uh, devoted myself to ever since. 
So as a, as a prophet to the nations, I would suspect that maybe there are also occasionally challenges that come along with that. Would you mind sharing with us, whether it's related to your ministry or your personal life, a time when you faced a significant challenge and then how God got you through that time? Probably the most significant challenge was in those early days when you're doing, Carolyn and I were married, we had our first son, and um, she was expecting our second child, and my job was to raise the money to go to, to on our, our work to Indonesia, to Borneo. So the fundraising was not going well. Um, and at one particular point, um, we were living off my wife's work as a nurse. I was unemployable because people would ask me, what are you going to do with your degree? Well, I'm going to go to Indonesia. I'm going to go to Borneo. Oh, sorry, I can't <laughs> use you. So I couldn't get work, and raising the funds to go overseas was difficult. It was coming in very, very slow. And then one particular weekend, we discovered that my son uh, needed surgery. He was two and a half years old, and he needed a surgery. I didn't have the money to pay for it. <laughs> My wife was pregnant. I had no money to pay for that. We had no health insurance, and I'm unemployed. How are we going to handle this? Right. And it uh, came to a point that one evening my wife came home from work, and, and uh, we spent the evening together. She finally went on to We put the kids to bed. She went to bed. And about 11 o'clock, I just sat down in a chair in our front room and started to pray. And I kept asking God one specific question. If you can't provide for me here, how are you going to provide for me when I'm somewhere else where I can't speak the language, I have nobody to turn to, nobody to help me? Yeah. And I spent that entire night in prayer. The next morning, my wife got up to go to work. I was still sitting in that chair or kneeling at that chair praying. And I got nothing. Mm. You know, you, you expect the Lord to answer, but after yeah. six or seven hours in prayer, there was nothing. But... Within a week, I got a job offer uh, making pistons for an automotive plant, so I was making very good money. Wow. And we started saving up money to pay for, the, for my daughter's birth. And, but I mentioned to one of the guys who was training me at the factory that um, I had scheduled my son's surgery, but I had to work overtime and do all the work I could to get money to pay for that. And he said, what are you doing that for? I said, well, the kid needs a surgery. Mm-hmm. So said, well, hey, look, in this company, man, once you get 30 days in, they'll pay for that. I said, no, that's pre-existing condition. Insurance <laughs> won't cover that. He says, when they work for you, when you work for this company, they'll take care of you. So I went back over and checked with them. They said that was the case. I rescheduled the surgery. That was in a matter of six weeks from when I spent my time in prayer. Both the birth of my child was covered, the surgery was covered, and uh, another month later, our support reached 100%. Wow. So in a matter of six to eight weeks, everything completely turned around. And that pretty much convinced me that when I need it, God will take care of it. How did that shift um, as you went into ministry, as you entered a culture where you didn't really know anybody, know the language that, all that well, how did that shift how you were able to approach that, uh, that time, that time of learning and transition? Well, it was always a challenge. It's always difficult. You, you move into a new culture, new language. You can't speak one word. The kids laugh at you because you can't say the time of day correctly. You know, they, they, they just think you're great. They, the kids run around. They're just waiting to see what this crazy white guy is going to do next. You know, and because uh, they just you don't know what to do, so you just have to humble yourself and learn and listen 
and try to remember what was that word for stamp, you know, or whatever yeah. it was. And you just try to do get through that. At one point, someone asked, I wanted to go to the store to get some baby food for our, our daughter. She was seven months old at the time. And I hadn't learned the word for baby yet. So I'm thinking Indonesian, they would use a lot of Americanized... Or, They'll change the American pronunciation to an mm-hmm. Indonesian style. So, like, democracy for them is democracy. Okay. So I'm thinking, babe, you know, baby food, Bobby. Yeah. Well, when I went down <laughs> and asked for food for a Bobby, I discovered that the word Bobby means pig, not baby. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you just do what you have to do, and you keep learning, and you learn to laugh at yourself and keep going forward. Yeah, so as... As the Indiana Jones of missions in South, you know, in Southeast Asia, if you will, uh, I would suspect that you've probably stayed in a wide variety of places as a world traveler. One of the people that was connected with you was interested in hearing maybe a little bit about the most austere place you've ever been, and then also the uh, the most posh place you've ever been. Would you mind sharing that with us? Sure. The most austere, well, I was working among uh, a mountain people in Borneo. They were extremely remote. Uh, uh, it was typical, take your bath in the river. They had no electricity. I, I'm walking because I couldn't get my motorcycles across the rivers. There was no bridges. Okay. So it's extremely remote. So I would be sleeping on a split bamboo, and if they would have a, a, a type of woven uh, mat woven out of uh, reeds and so forth. They'd give me that to sleep on. And the one particular evening, I was out in the village and I'd been preaching and had a, had some pretty good results. And um, they gave me the they call it a tea car grass mat to sleep okay. on. So I rolled over and went to sleep and didn't take note of the fact that up my knee had gone off of the tea car onto just the open f- uh, bamboo floor. Okay. And I woke up about an hour later, and I later counted them, 187 bite mites on oh. one knee. <laughs> so that was probably the worst experience I've had. And uh, on the flip side, I, I, I've heard also that you stayed in some pretty nice places. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that? We're just kind of getting to know you a little bit. Okay, probably the nicest, uh, best I can think of right now was a couple of the very nice places in Delhi. I was taken. I was part of a team from another um, Midwestern church, and and they made all the arrangements. Um, they went to places that I I would never have chosen because I just I try to be more conservative. Hmm. But it was I think it was something like the Hilton or the Marriott or something like that in Delhi, and it was just an amazing kind of thing and and uh, great wonderful facilities, free Wi-Fi, excellent food, and. Um, Hey, they even polished up my shoes for me. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> That's neat. As you think about your life and your ministry, do you have any personal habits, maybe things that you do that you believe contribute to what God's been able to accomplish in your life? I've tried to keep foremost in my thinking as a focus on the Scriptures. If I can spend my time with the Scriptures and reading and learning to walk, what I say walk in the Spirit, just constantly being aware of what God wants me to do. And I will often speak of of just follow the cloud. You know, in the Old Testament, God led Israel by the cloud. And so when the cloud moves, I move. If the cloud's not moving, I'm not going anywhere. So I, I've changed positions a few times, but I don't move until I'm absolutely convinced this is what God wants me to do. 
And that's probably been the best part of it. So as I think about that, I, I have an opinion of how you would know when the cloud's moving and when the cloud is staying. But for somebody listening that this is maybe the first time they've heard that concept, can you mm-hmm. share with them how they can become connected with God in that way and understand when he's moving and when he's staying? Well, for me, there's always been some pretty clear evidences of it. For example, when I was leaving Borneo to return to the United States, I had already committed to taking a teaching position back in the States, but I wasn't convinced that I was doing the right thing. And I was meditating, Lord, am I running away from this bad situation or something I don't like in Indonesia, or am I really following what you want me to do? Mm-hmm. And I, I'd been praying about that for two, three days, because I still had time to change my decision at that point. And we got a, a radio message. We were back up in the jungle somewhere, and, and our communication with the outside world was by shortwave radio. So my field director told me he had a message for me. I went over to the radio, and uh, ask him what was up, and his comment was, well, Wayne, got some bad news for you. Your visa application for Indonesia has been rejected. You must be out of the country within uh, six months. Wow. And that pretty well clinched it. Yeah, I guess I was doing the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> I would think so, yeah. Um, as I think about getting to know you a little bit, the, I'm not sure exactly how to approach this question, but it was one that somebody connected with you was interested in hearing a little bit more about. And what they were interested in hearing about was sp- some spiritual warfare stuff. I understand you've maybe encountered some of that. And I don't know how to frame it up because what I don't want to do is glorify spiritual warfare. What I really want to do is just hear about God. Is there a way that we can approach that and and still maintain our focus? Well, it's so... It's often tempting to make it exciting. Yeah. And probably the most useful example I could give would would be of a case where I was in the Philippines uh, about two years ago. And I was doing a training seminar, and during the the breaks on one of the sessions, um, a lady from that village, that community, brought her her college-aged daughter to us and spoke to the host, and then, because he could speak the local language, I couldn't Mm. speak their language, and brought uh, the lady and her daughter to me and said, this um, college girl is troubled with a demon. Mm. And so, well, what makes you say that? We discussed it a bit, and they gave me some things, and this, would you be willing to talk to her? So I said, sure, bring her over, We'll, we'll talk. So, as she came over, um, she was introduced to me, and as she's being introduced to me, she completely changed. Her face changed, her behavior changed, she began to scream um, and thrash about, fell down on the ground, and um, the typical kind of things that you expect with some type of demonic manifestation. And uh, my host, he began a typical Philippine kind of reaction to that which was uh, some shouting and some um, visible kinds of actions. But I just stepped back and started to pray. And I I simply prayed and asked, Lord, would you please send that spirit away so that we can talk to this girl and share with her what she needs to know to be freed from this influence. And in about two or three minutes, um, she returned to normal. And I spoke to her again and asked her if she knew who Jesus was, and she began to to speak properly to me. And I said, you know, the only way you're going to deal with this is if you know Jesus. 
And at that point, the Spirit seized her again. The whole process was repeated. Hmm. And um, so again, I just stepped back and started to pray. And after about two, three minutes, uh, she resumed normal conversation. And I said to her, you see what happens if you do not visibly, if you do not immediately accept Jesus. If you accept him, this will end. And uh, her response was to say something to the effect, yes, I want Jesus in my life. And then the host began to speak to her in the Filipino language and led her to faith in Jesus. And there was no further manifestation of that. And the problems that the mother was concerned about, um, I've had some recent communications from that gentleman that have not recurred. Wow. That, that's so encouraging, at least to me, because a lot of times I hear things like you have to take authority and you have to do this and do that. And to hear that you were able to just step back and say, Jesus, yeah. can, can you fix this? Yeah. That, that's so freeing. That's how I found it. Because I, you know, when I was back in Bible college, would hear the stories and, you know, you, The Exorcist was a big movie back in the time I was in college. <laughs> And I don't have any holy water. I don't have water from the, the Galaxy of Galilee or anything. So yeah. What am I going to do? And, but Jesus said, this kind comes out by prayer. So I just asked God to take care of it and give us a moment of clarity so we can tell this girl what she's dealing with and then let her make the choice. So traveling the world quite a bit, I suspect you maybe speak more than one language. How many languages do you speak? Well, I speak Indonesian well enough I can preach and teach in it. Okay. And very cl- closely aligned with that is the, the Malaysian language, which I can also speak and can deal with Malay a little bit. Okay. But that's, that's basically it. That, that's, that's great. Now, um, I, I think that we're, we're going to need to take a quick break uh, just to kind of reset stuff. But when we return, we're going to shift our focus a little bit from learning about you to learning more about the ministry. So we'll just take a quick break. Okay. Take your leadership to the next level. It's time for the Engaging Missions Leadership Moment with Scott McClelland of FX Missions. Hi, this is Scott McClelland. Thanks for joining us. Today I want to talk to you about contribution. That's what leadership is, after all, is making a contribution, having an impact, um, investing yourself in something. Sometimes when it's come to my personal opportunities to make a contribution, there have been times where I've fallen into one of two ditches. One is looking for a contribution under any circumstances, or perhaps I was working from a sense of um, insecurity and wanted to make sure that my contribution was not only made, but recognized by everyone. That's a I think that's something that happens to us in immaturity is that we want to make sure people have noted that we made a contribution. Of course, Jesus said, when you pray, go into a secret room and make your request to God so that he'll notice you and you won't be doing it to be seen of men. This can also be something that we want to consider when it comes to the contribution we're making, who are we wanting to be seen by. A second trap, I think, that happens when we come to the subject of contribution is sometimes when we need to make a contribution but the circumstances don't look perfect or we feel maybe we aren't appreciated in self-righteousness we'll want to withdraw our contribution or keep from making it 
And in that case, we need to humble ourselves and make a contribution, even though circumstances or individuals might not seem to deserving in our minds. Contribution, it's what leadership is all about. Make sure that you uh, make your contribution, but do it as unto God. And humble yourself to reach out in situations and to people that you might not think are worthy, so to speak. Thanks for joining us for the Leadership Moment. This is Scott McClellan with FX Missions. If you'd like to reach me or us, please do so at fxmissions.com or on most social media outlets at FX Missions. Have a good one. This has been the Engaging Missions Leadership Moment with Scott McClelland of FX Missions. If you have a leadership question, please send it to feedback at engagingmissions.com and visit fxmissions.com to connect with Scott and discover how you could be involved in short-term missions. All right, we are back with Bill. We just finished hearing a little bit about some of the things that God's done in his life, about um, some some spiritual warfare stuff, really some freeing things as it relates to that. Now we're going to shift our focus a little bit away from Bill and more toward the ministry that he's got. So, Bill, as we're moving to the present day, I'm thinking about the wide variety of different things that you've done, everything from, you know, being uh, on staff as a as a teacher, and then also discipling people, training people to disciple. Is there maybe a common thread or a journey that God's been taking you on that kind of underpins all of this? You know, a few years ago, there was a big um, push with the phrase, what would Jesus do? Mm-hmm. And I studied that book in part of my, one of my theology classes when I was in Bible college and began to think through that. And when this um, fad set in here in the U.S., what would Jesus do? I began thinking it was more important to ask, what did Jesus do? Oh. Then what would he do? And again, that drives me back to the scriptures and say, what did he do in the book? What is he? What do I see Jesus doing? And if I can do that, if I can repeat that and teach people to simply do what he did— I think we'll have much greater success in terms of establishing the kingdom of God and glorifying his name. So that's really what I've tried to do is what did Jesus do? How can I emulate that? What can I pass on to someone else that will motivate them to actually do what Jesus did? So so when you think about putting feet or hands and feet on that, how, how are you able to take that and make it practical? You talk about what did Jesus do, but Jesus did a wide variety of things. How does that work itself out in your life? And well, in your- the most important thing he did was just tell people about who he was. And he'd find a way to talk to people, get them to ask questions, um, and deal with them where they were hurting and what their problems were. You get, you find a man who's got a son who throws himself in the fire and wants to kill himself. Well, you take care of that problem, and then the man wants to know more about Jesus. And it's start a conversation over a glass of water. Hey, give me something to drink. What are you talking about? You Jew, you going to ask me for something to drink? You know the story, John yeah. chapter 4. Just find ways to, to get the conversation going. And that's what I try to teach people to do within their context. Uh, now, for me, in Indonesia, it was easy. Because at that time, I was the only foreigner anywhere around there. You know, Indonesians are Asian complexion, dark complexion, mm-hmm. black hair, brown eyes. They're beautiful people. But for me, going among them... Where'd this white guy come from? That, I was asked that more, more often than I could imagine. And I could walk into a coffee shop, 
And before I could get to the seat to sit down, someone would be yelling at me, where are you come from? You know, because <laughs> they want to practice their English. And so then they'd ask me, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm telling people how, how to have a relationship with their creator. Oh, you teach religion. So, oh, no, man, I don't have religion. I tell people how to have a personal relationship with the creator. And, of course, that you can't. How can you not have religion? In Indonesia, everyone had to have religion. Right. So that opened up a whole way of, of uh, discussing it with them. And so what I try to get people to do is what will work in your culture? What will work in your situation? How do you start a conversation and turn that to spiritual things? And most of them, when you give them a few minutes to reflect on it, will find answers that they can, things they can do. So as, as we think about that question, is that the primary way then that you help other people begin to disciple and to pass information or pass knowledge of God onto them? Well, trying to get them to understand that they can do what Jesus did. Okay. And he, he did it very simply. And we can make this thing so complicated. I mean, we can get, you know, the first 10 steps to spiritual maturity and 18 steps to understanding the gospel. And, and no, man, it's not that complicated. It's just, it's basic. God, man, sin, and Jesus. You can do it just from those four basic principles and tell <laughs> you can do an awful lot with that. Where do you feel like you've been able to have the most impact for the cause of Christ? Well, in the, since 2009, I've been doing discipleship training seminars across mm-hmm. Asia. And uh, every country in Southeast Asia where I visited, I've been able to train some people to make disciples who make disciples, who go make more disciples. And uh, I could tell you about a, a fellow working out of um, in Myanmar, just a little bit north of Mandalay. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's... He translated for me for two seminars, and then he decided it was time for him to do this on his own instead of just translating it to go do it. So he started with a group of eight people and um, started having services and and talking to people, witnessing to them. And uh, within two months, he had so many people in the house that the owner told him he couldn't meet there anymore. So get out. We can't have Christians in this house. This is a Buddhist country. So Mm -hmm. he was told to get out. He had to find a new place then for his residence and had to find a new place to meet. So they tried a couple of ideas, but they finally wound up having their meetings at a, at a park down by the riverside. And by this point, he's got over 100 people, that most of whom he has led to faith, or he and his disciples have led to faith. And most of whom are from Buddhism, a few from Islam. Mm-hmm. And um, so I says, what are you going to do down at the river? And his comment was, well, it was going quite well down there until the police showed up one, one day and wanted to know what this hundred people were doing because they discovered it was illegal to have more than ten people gathering at a place in uh, Myanmar without uh-huh. permission from the government. And he didn't have permission. So he explained that they were unaware of that, that they would abide by what the rules were for the government. And, mm-hmm. But he asked the policeman, what could we do? He says, you can't have a meeting like this unless it's somebody's special day, like a birthday or an anniversary or something. Oh, okay. (laughs) So next week, they celebrated his birthday. And the following week, they celebrated his wife's birthday. And the next week, they celebrated somebody else's birthday. And they just began having birthday parties every Sunday down at the park. And uh, that went along quite a while. But when he reached 200, he realized he couldn't keep doing that. (laughs) He divided that group of 200 people into about eight small house churches. Mm -hmm. And then he began focusing on working just with the elders of those particular house gatherings 
And the last I heard, they had, had doubled in size again. Wow. That's, that's just in Myanmar. And I, I don't know of any place else in the world where Buddhists are being one to Christ in those kind of numbers. Yeah, I've been, one of my previous guests uh, went by a pen named Jay Judson, and he said that uh, in the time that he was in Myanmar, that God has just, well, in, and since he's been back in the States, God has continued, mm-hmm. but they've seen amazing things just by following some of these basic principles. Yeah. Uh, um, at the risk of sounding a little bit naive, would you mind sharing with us some of the basic principles that you use as you're training other people to make disciples? Well, Basic principles is like I said, those four points. I, mm-hmm. they, they need to know who God is. They need to know or who humanity is, and God created us. They need to know that uh, we were created perfect. We fell into sin. So there's, you know, God created man, and then there was a problem of sin, and Jesus was sent to fix the sin problem. Mm-hmm. And as I get them to understand that in their various contexts, if you're talking to a Japanese audience, their definition of the sin problem is perceived more as defilement okay. or failure to perform to the standards of their of their people. And so how do you overcome that? Well, Jesus can fix that. Um, you go among a Buddhist and they're worried about um, their karma and how do you... Uh, for example, I, I, a friend of mine told me about a, a Hindu woman in Nepal that he was witnessing to, and she was, she had just a terrible life with, out on the street. She had been married. Her husband left her with a couple of kids, and she's thrown out and living on the street, basically living like a dog. Hmm. And uh, so he's talking to her, and her comment to him was. Um, I must have had a really, I must have been a really horrible person in my previous life to have such horrible karma. And when I heard that, my first response was to say to them something like, well, there's no such thing as karma. But this experienced worker told her, you know, Jesus can take care of that karma. Oh. He can take it away. And, well, how can Jesus do that? He led her to faith in Jesus. It's just that basic point. It's God, man, sin, and Jesus. And you make Jesus the sol- the solution to whatever their definition of sin is, and then it speaks into powerfully into their world. Now, I, I've heard that for a Buddhist, it's really hard to to wrap their minds around the concept of a personal God. H- have you found that to be a challenge? It is a challenge, and. Uh, this gentleman I mentioned to, to you earlier who had done the house church and, and, and multiplied was at one point, he had led a young man to, to faith, a teenager to faith, and the uh, teenager's f- family was furious with him mm-hmm. and wanted to know who had told him about this different God and uh, ordered the boy to repent and go back to the to Buddhist ways. He refused. So they called the boy's older brother from a uh, uh, what's the term, a Buddhist uh, monastery, to come down and put the young brother right, get him straightened out and get him back on the proper way. And the uh, brother came down and wanted to know who had done this to him and mis- you know confused him and so on. So the, this, uh, the new believer told him it was my friend. So the older brother says, I'm going to go over there and, and beat him up. So he gets his crew with him, and they storm over there to the house, and and my friend heard them coming, and my friend is, is a pretty good, he's a very large um, person of me and Mar. Okay. Very large. And the other gentlemen were much smaller, more typical Asian size. And um, so when they confronted my friend, their first thought was, oh boy, now what have I done? When they see this Goliath <laughs> coming out to talk to them. 
But he asked them what they wanted, and he says, well, why have you told my son about this strange God? And he says, I didn't tell you about any strange God. What's this about him becoming a Christian? Well, I just told him how he could be put in touch with a much more powerful spirit. Don't you want to know about how to be in touch with a powerful spirit? Well, yeah, because what they're after is power, spiritual power. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, well, uh, he basically told him what I said, God, sin, man, God, man, sin, and, and Jesus. And he says, now, do you want to know some more about this? I got a I got a film inside in the house uh, tells you all about this guy. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I want to see that. So I took him inside and showed him the Jesus film. And after seeing the Jesus film, he was so taken with it, he asked, "Can I take this back to my monastery? I want to show it to the leader of my monastery." <laughs> and I've got a photograph of of that of my friend with the boy, the big brother, and the leader of the monastery all being baptized at the same day. Wow! Because of. What I'm sharing, what he was being shared with there was not the personal God, but this more powerful spirit that mm-hmm. would give you more power. And they began to see Jesus in that way, but once they understood him, um, then the knowledge, of course, is perfected. Wow, that, that's great. As you think about uh, obstacles or needs for people coming to Christ, what, what are the biggest obstacles you've seen? Um. It depends on where you are. Each country is different. Here in the United States, it's 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 our desire for independence, and 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 no one's going to tell me what to do. You know, our ego gets in the way. And in Vietnam, um, it, it's the family because, and in the Chinese, this is another serious problem because the the family has to maintain um, the ancestors. Hmm. And so you have to offer the sacrifices, the offerings, and, and send um, money and, and prayers and so forth to provide for the ancestors. And if you don't do that, then you're not being a good son. And so that's a very, very powerful thing. So, and one gentleman that I work with in Indonesia was a Chinese man. He, as a, he was a very, very good carpenter. He came to faith in Jesus, but he wouldn't be baptized. And he was working with another organization, so I, did, I wasn't directly involved in his spiritual growth. But I did learn that he just refused to be baptized, even though he professed faith. And he waited until after his father died to be baptized. Yeah. Because he wanted to maintain an open relationship with his father and hopefully bring his father to faith. And where if he had been baptized, then that his father would have seen that as being um walking away from the family, rejecting the family responsibilities of maintaining the ancestors. So he kept that relationship open as long as he could and waited until after his father passed before he was baptized. It's, it's different in every country. Yeah. Is, is it difficult to reconcile that desire to maintain that relationship and hopefully bring someone to Christ and then also the obedience to the command to be baptized? Yes. It's a, it's a question of really timing, I think. Yeah. Um, I have another friend who's working in a in a Muslim nation. And this particular individual has, when I first met the individual, had brought into existence 70 house churches of Muslim background believers. Mm. And a year later, when I met the person, well, a year and a half later, when I met the person again, was actually visiting that person's community, that 70 house churches had become 140 house churches. Wow. And I, how did you do this? And, and the explanation was given. Basically, the sort of thing that we were do, we normally do was you work to build relationships, friendships, bless the community, and then people begin asking, "Why are you doing? Why are you Christians doing this for us Muslims?" And then you tell them about Jesus, and it opens up doors. But um, 
you do those kinds of things and you begin building relationships and you overcome the challenges of it by uh, really basically just loving them. Wow, that, that's powerful. As we tie a bow on this section, I'd like to just ask one more question, and that would be, as you think about your ministry, what is it that fuels your passion or breaks your heart? Uh, let me take you back to Dhaka in Bangladesh. I was I had just arrived in the city, my first visit to, uh, to Bangladesh, and my friend had met me at the airport, and we'd gotten a taxi. We're heading back to um, the place where he would arrange for us to have our meetings. We got caught in the traffic jam. And uh, we're on the, right at the edge of the road by the sidewalk, and there's on the other side of the sidewalk a red brick wall with a portion of that wall having been knocked down. The bricks were all laying scattered across the sidewalk there coming out toward the road. And I'm just sitting there watching when this little Bengali girl, no more than two years of age, black-haired, dark-complected, big brown eyes, comes climbing across these brick, barefooted, filthy, and uh, just the dirt all over her, but just a chubby little black-haired girl coming climbing across this brick wall, and my first thought was, where's her parents? Where's her mother? Someone's got, because if this kid doesn't get some help, she's going to be out in the street. Mm-hmm. And um, she, then I noticed she was dressed in a little rag that just barely covered herself, and I'm thinking, this kid needs some help. But we're stuck in the traffic jam, and what can I do? And I'm kind of looking around like, come on, kid, where's mom and dad? Mm-hmm. And she climbed over that pile of red brick down to the sidewalk and then squatted down, you know, as, as children will do, and just began to scream and cry. And it was as if all the anguish of the universe was in that girl's face. She hmm. just was screaming into the world. And I know she wanted mom, she wanted dad, something. And I'm looking around, would somebody come help this kid? And I'm about ready to go over there and help her myself when the taxi finally pulls away. And I'm, I'm, that was at least four years ago. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've prayed for that little girl constantly since then. And, I, and I've been thinking, what does that mean? And about a year later, I was in Bhutan. And, you know, Bhutan is famous for their, flag, their prayer flags. Mm-hmm. I wasn't thoroughly... Uh, versed on what the prayer flags mean, but we got up to one high mountain pass, and there were 108 uh, prayer um, quills, we call them there, Um, little devices that are symbolizing places where people come to pray. Mm -hmm. And there were thousands, I mean thousands of flags hung out in the breeze, and I asked my tour guide, "What what are these flags up here for? Well, each flag had a prayer written on it. And their belief was that every time that flag is wafted by the breeze, that prayer is offered to the spirit world. Mm-hmm. And my first thought was, ridiculous. How can anybody be so stupid as to believe that? And the Holy Spirit immediately spoke to me and said, don't call these people stupid. They're no different than that little girl. They're screaming into the universe, is anybody out there? Mm. God, are you there? If anybody cares, can you hear me? I need something for my daughter. I need something for my son. I need to pass the exam. I need these things. God, are you there? Is this huge scream to the universe. Does anybody care? 
whether it's that flag or it's that little girl, it's just these people are screaming, God, where are you? And I understand that's what I've been sent to do, is to help them find that God. Wow, that is a powerful story. With that, we are going to take another quick break. And when we return, we're going to shift our focus one last time more toward the listeners and getting some information, maybe some uh, resources and insight from you. Wondering what's going on in the world? It's time for a quick check-in. This is Engaging Missions from the Field. A couple of weeks ago, I caught up with Jenny Beth Gardner from the Transformational Education Network. This is what we talked about. Last time we talked, I thought that you were heading over long-term to stay in, um, in Africa. Uh, that, was, that was the intention, yes. Okay. And uh, that's still, still the hope. Um, just uh, <laughs> things happened, including you know, my husband coming into the picture. Um, and he, uh, you know, even when we started dating, I made it clear, by the way, I am planning on moving to Africa. And he said, well, I am totally opening, open to going to Africa if you know, the Lord provides you know the way that uh you know he could he could be there and be involved somehow and um uh so i mean for now we're kind of getting our bearings here in the u.s and um you know certain things change with the for instance you know our the plan was for me to go to zambia and things changed with the staff that were in zambia and just with um uh you know the situation um with my husband and what he'd uh, the connections he would have to have um that we're thinking it may not be Zambia where where we end up going, you know, possibly Nigeria, but we're we're kind of leaving that in the Lord's hands now, just waiting to see what uh, what opens up. But you know, still, I'm still serving with ten uh, three and uh, moving forward on that. Cool. So, um, and as far as what the um, the what's going on with the ministry, um, main thing we're really excited about is um, that uh, Anthony recently came back from uh, Tanzania. He had a uh, uh, we were contacted by a pastor there in um, Tanzania who actually totally out of the blue found us. I think somehow he got a tweet that uh, Matt had sent out and um, uh, that, and learned about our ministry and just thought, hey, that's exactly what I want. I want to start a computer outreach where, uh, you know, people can learn to use, you know, good skills on the computer so they can get better jobs, but so that we can also teach them the Bible and bring them to Jesus. And, um, and so then they, they got in contact with us and, uh, we tried something that, uh, we'd never tried before, but that, uh, we were really hopeful would address a problem we'd been having was, uh, you know, we would be invited to a place to help them, uh, start up computer education. And so we'd just kind of fly over and dump a ton of information on them in the space of a couple of weeks and then leave with, you know, them, having all this information on, you know, what makes a school work well, what, uh, what, you know, what educational principles to use to make sure the students get it and all that. But, you know, it would never really sink in because it was just so much. And so what we tried this time was, um, just every, every week, uh, uh, one of our trainers and consultants would meet, meet with them for, it was supposed to be 10 minutes. It always ended up being longer (laughs) than that. But, uh, meeting with them to discuss different parts of, uh, you know, what they need to understand about starting a computer school. And so that, yeah, when Anthony went over um, last uh, month, it was the beginning of November, um, you know, they, they already had he, the board member and the principal and, you know, already had a really good understanding of, um, you know, a lot of what needs to be done. And so, um, yeah, they're hoping to start classes, I believe, this week. And 
So that's something we're really excited about and praising the Lord for is the start of this, you know, new new school in a new area that's um you know, we we hadn't had any contact with before, but that uh is, you know, really does have a heart for reaching their community and uh teaching them to uh know Christ through these computer classes. Well, that's pretty cool. And all of that just from a tweet, huh? Yeah, all that all that started from a tweet, <laughs> apparently. If you're interested in getting involved with the 10-3 organization or learning more about what they have going on, email info at 103.org. That's info at T-E-N, the number three, dot org. We love hearing what God is doing wherever our guests are ministering. If you're connected to a former guest and would like to hear the update here, let them know about this segment of the Engaging Missions show. All right, we are back with Bill. We've just had a quick break. We heard uh, some amazing stories about what God's done in his ministry and how God's uh, breaking his heart for the people who are crying out to the universe, where is God? Now we're shifting our focus more toward you as the listener. So, Bill, I know from from what I look at that most of the people who listen are here in the U.S. They feel connected to missions, but maybe not called to full-time ministry. However, a couple of people that you're connected to did have some questions about that are specific to that. So I want to add those in here. So what would you tell somebody who's uh, maybe a young person who's feeling a similar call? What would you ask, suggest that they do? Learn to make disciples where they are now. It's, it's really the simple process of, of finding some way to tell somebody about Jesus. And whether you're in the U.S. or you're outside the U.S., it's really basically the same things. And it takes time to study your target audience to figure out how to present that. Now, I have a very difficult time witnessing in the U.S. Mm-hmm. because I spent so much time outside the U.S. that I really don't understand the American mindset now. You know, the millennials are different from me, if you understand yeah. my point. Oh, yeah. I haven't quite figured out how to do that one. But if you give it enough thought, it, it's there's always a way to turn a conversation to something spiritual. And that uh, in the U.S., with, we're not allowed, for example, to talk openly about Christ now. And if you start talking religion at work, you can get fired and things like that. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is be the best we can possibly be at our jobs. And I put that under what we call the cultural mandate. Mm-hmm. You know, the first commands given to human beings was to be was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Right. So subduing the earth is. Um, you know, can be as simple as a uh, as a uh, a Dayak woman in Indonesia gathering firewood to make clean water for her family, or it can be a um, a doctor like Ben Carson doing brain surgery. It's subduing the earth. It's causing the earth to produce what humanity needs. And so, whether you're a businessman or an attorney, a doctor, a teacher, a farmer, whatever, you're making the world a better place and fulfilling that commandment to subdue the earth. And as you go about that, you do that with excellence and skill, people begin to ask why you have such happiness in doing it. Hmm. Why are you so happy being a carpenter? Oh, man, this is what God called me to do. You find a way to relate that to this, to the the command to make disciples, and you begin sharing your faith that way. Do you have any practical advice for somebody who's trying to gain financial support for a ministry? Pray. (laughs) 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 In many ways, it's it's sales. You're selling yourself. You're selling shares of your own stock company. Mm -hmm. And 
it's not a pleasant thing to do. Yeah. But on the other hand, when you're telling people, look what God did, that's not me asking for help. It's saying, it's these people. It's this little girl in Bangladesh needs somebody to come and wash her face. It's this student in, in Bhutan who's just screaming out to the world, someone help me pass the exam. Um, you find in prayer and you find in your conversations with people some way to share that. And if you can put that into um, a letter or a phone call or in a five-minute conversation, um, one of the things I've done is I've, I've found ways I can, if I've got 30 seconds, one minute, three minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, I can fill that gap. Whatever time you give me, I can put something in there to get them thinking in the right direction. And uh, if I got 30 seconds, hey, hey, when can we get together for coffee? You know, there's this this little girl I want to tell you about that I saw in Bangladesh. Hmm. And then you follow up with that. You just try to make those contact contacts and see what God will do with them. That's good. As I think about the U.S., one of the things I've noticed is that the demographic is changing. And as you know, my next door neighbor is not from here. He's actually from Zimbabwe. What would you share with somebody if they look up one day and they realize, oh my goodness, my neighbors are from somewhere that I thought we'd just send missionaries. How do, how do I relate to them? How, what do I do? I stepped on the island of New Guinea one time about five, four or five years ago. I was going there to, to do a seminar, and I was invited to speak at a church one Sunday morning. The pastor asked me to meet with a group of their pastors and uh, on the next day. We met, and the leaders that had come together were about 60 men who represented somewhere around 600 churches Wow! in that community. Now, this was the Indonesian portion of the island of New Guinea, and there, there are many, many Christians on there. And their statement to me was, we've got a problem because we're doing, the Indonesian government has done what they call transmigrasi. It's basically migration, moving Muslim people from the island of Java, which is heavily, heavily overpopulated, over to this empty land of New Guinea. And they're bringing in these Muslims. And these Christian guys are saying, what are we going to do? They're taking over our land. They're moving in. And if, if we let this go on, we're going to be a minority in our own country. <laughs> we're losing our, our land. Yeah. What do we do? And I, I don't know. When you, one of the things I've learned over the years, when you don't know what to do and you can't prepare for it, the Holy Spirit gives you words to say. And I said, you know, really, there's three things you can do, guys. One, you can fight. Mm-hmm. And you can get your bows and arrows out, and you can get your poison darts, and you can go, you can come out here and fight these guys. But they're coming with tanks and airplanes and and rifles. I said you can fight, but you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to keep them out. The other thing you can do is you can flee. You can run back up into your mountain fastness, go hide in the mountain valleys again, and live up there. And you might get away with that for one or two generations. But there's gold up in those hills. There's untapped timber. There's tin. There's aluminum. There's copper. There's all of these vital minerals that the world wants. They are coming, and you can't keep them out. So you can't fight them, and you can't go hide from them. You've only got one choice left. When they move in next door, invite them over for tea. And you don't invite the Muslims over to have pork. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, invite, you invite them over for tea. <laughs> Serve them some fruit. Talk to them. 
and find out what they need. If they need to know where their kids can go to school, help them find the way to the school. You need to know where to get the water or electricity turned on, help them do that. Be their friend. Show them the love of Christ in every way you can. And build a relationship with them. Get to know them. And eventually... This is what I learned from the person who had launched those 70 home house churches of Muslim background mm-hmm. believers. Eventually, those people are going to ask, we were told you Christians hated us. Why are you doing this to us? Why are you being so nice? And that answer is always the same. Because God loves you, and I want you to know how much God loves you. Lead them to Christ. That's, that's great. Do you have an internet resource or maybe a book that you'd like to re- recommend for our listeners? The Bible. It sounds facetious, <laughs> no. but, but really that is the foundation of it. And the last three or four years, I've kind of quit reading other sources because <laughs> I've, I've been doing this long enough that I'm seeing the same things recycled. Sure. It's some new discovery. But a couple of things you might find interesting. One is called Announcing the Kingdom by Arthur F. Glasser. Okay. And another is called... Um, what is the mission of the church by DeYoung and Gilbert. Okay. Those two I found helpful, helping us to understand um, how do you make the most important thing, the most important thing. That's great. For those of you listening, we will make sure to have all of this linked up in the show notes, which will be at engagingmissions.com slash bill. So that should be nice and easy to remember, engagingmissions.com slash bill. Now, Bill, we are just about done. I just have one last question for you. Could you share with us maybe a parting piece of guidance, and then we'll say goodbye? Parting piece of guidance. Just, just make disciples. Tell somebody about <laughs> Jesus and teach them how to do the same thing. It's, it's really just that simple. Well, that's, that's great. Bill, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Hey there. Just a quick note before I let you go. This will be the last regular episode for 2015. As you may be aware, for the next couple of weeks, a lot of people will be traveling, so I'm not going to have a regular interview, but I will have a couple of special episodes planned for you. So if you're looking for one of the regular interviews, stop by after the first of the year. Otherwise, I hope that you enjoy what I have planned for you. Thanks for listening to The Engaging Mission Show. You can find more great content like this, along with show notes, by visiting engagingmissions.com or by subscribing to the show in iTunes or Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. Audio editing was provided by Jeff Butterworth of Sound Paradigm Studio. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week.